us again every hour on the hour, coughing and puffing. Look, Doctor, I know science comes first, but that thing is ridiculous. For six hours straight, every hour on the hour. afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current events in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Joe Ledoux, who'll be discussing his new book, Synaptic Self, How Our Brains Become Who We Are. Also, we'll find out where your buckyballs come from. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And once again, I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Not too bad, not too bad. How about you, Charles? Oh, as always, uh, doing well and looking for science excitement and science fun. Yeah, science is fun, huh? It's like a roller coaster. It's more fun than sex, damn it. (laughs) If there's anything that's more fun than sex, it's got to be science, right? Well, here's actually some good news for technology. Uh It turns out that Afghanistan has, for the first time, got their own web domain. They've got their own web domain? Yeah, since the Taliban banned it when they were in power. Wow, so what's the URL? It's whatever.af. Whatever.af. So if anyone wants to check out what's going on there, uh, I guess you can just search websites in Afghanistan from now on. Wow, that's exciting. But uh, here's the real good news. Okay. Our universe is going to get ripped apart in 60 billion years. Wow. The big rip. The big rip. You haven't done the big rip before? I, I haven't. One of the things that's on my list to do. I think we'll get there one of these days. So, <laughs> Just 60 billion. So, uh, Robert Caldwell from Dartmouth, Mark Kamilkowski, and Nevin Weinberg from Caltech have developed this new theory that the expansion of the universe will get faster and faster. Faster and faster until it eventually just uh, hurls and rips us all apart. Eventually so fast that like matter will start flying away from each other. So, so it's actually going to get repelled or something? Or? Yeah. Uh, basically, they said this is the most repulsive theory <laughs> that's been devised. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm frankly repelled, flabbergasted, offended by it. Yeah, and they think uh, wormholes can be created by these uh, occurrences. Oh, okay. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to occur at the end of the universe. It's just... Yeah, but uh, there's a timeline of what's going to happen in the last billion years. So oh. a billion years before the, the Big Rip, basically, at this point, our Milky Way will be so far from all the other galaxies that we cannot see them anymore. So that, uh, that would mean actually that we're traveling faster than light at that point. If, it's very possible. Somehow, I guess. In some uh, strange some, sense, I guess. I, I suppose, yeah. So, what, 60 million years, the Milky Way will actually be uh, torn apart by then, and three months before, planets will fly away from the solar system. I mean, assuming they're still around there. Right. I don't think they will be at that point. <laughs> but let's say we survive all of this. The Earth will explode about half an hour before, and at that point, that's when the atoms and the nuclei start falling apart. Well, 
So I guess if anyone wants to know more, they can go to space.com or Nevin Weinberg's website at Caltech. All right, great. Doesn't doesn't this depend on the whole uh, Hubble constant? Doesn't that keep changing by the I, week? I think they do. They it's have a, a different metric every year, and yeah. it keeps changing. It's open, it's closed, keeps physicists in business. Yeah. Well, at least, hey, next year we'll talk about the big crunch. Let it rip. All right, well, maybe a while before uh, we get ripped apart in the uh, big rip. Mm. But until that time, uh, we can uh, look forward to anthrax regulation. Anthrax regulation? Yes, indeed. So what's up with regulation? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked that. It's not regulating anthrax or even uh, having anthrax be regulated. It's anthrax regulating itself. Oh, you mean we can't traffic it then? No, uh, and even if you could, would you really? Yeah, you don't want to snort white stuff. No, it would not be a good thing. But uh, a good number of researchers have been looking into, I guess, the number of factors that are involved in terms of allowing anthrax to invade its host. Mm -hmm. And so it turns out there's a number of different genes in the anthrax uh, genome that are responsible for this. So there's uh, there's like a chromosomal, which mm-hmm. is like the main source of the genetic material. And then there's this other type of genetic material called plasmids. Right. And these plasmids are the factors that make the anthrax bacteria particularly virulent. You mean like it can mutate very easily? Well, no, it makes it toxic to the host. It is able to regulate all these sort of toxic responses that the, the bacteria create. But for a long time, it's been thought that perhaps just these plasmids were responsible alone for causing the whole anthrax toxicity. Right. But in fact, it turns out that the anthrax genes that are on these plasmids are actually regulating a number of other genes that are on the chromosome itself. Oh, I see. So these plasmid genes are regulating the stuff on the bigger chromosome genes. Wow. Yeah, and that's caused the actual virulence of the anthrax bacteria. So do they think that if they can disrupt this regulation activity, it can make anthrax less toxic? It's it's certainly possible. I mean, uh, before, I guess they were just trying to target the plasma genes alone, but certainly mm-hmm. they have to consider now that the genes for anthrax to be toxic are actually well in the, uh, in the chromosome. Cool. So if, if anyone's interested in uh, regulating anthrax or doing something with anthrax, hopefully benign... Uh, Washing your hands will get rid of it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Molecular Microbiology is where it came in, uh, Volume 47, uh, page 917, and the researchers were Mignot and others. So, Charles, how fast is your computer? Well, it's not very fast since my computer's a brick. <laughs> oh, the $180 one? Yes, uh, we don't need to talk about the $160 Oh, brick. $160. I'm yes. sorry, Charles. <laughs> I, I would never pay $180 for a brick. 160 on the other hand. It's a very painful story. I'll, uh, maybe I'll tell it sometime. <laughs> it's on the web somewhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> but Israeli scientists believe they can build a computer that can perform about 100 times faster than the fastest PC. And so that's approximately 330 trillion operations per second. And they, they're hoping they can do this using DNA. DNA? Yes. DNA is the computational elements. <laughs> yeah. How okay. fast are your genes, man? <laughs> <laughs> Not very fast. I mean, you can tell just by listening to me, really. <laughs> you haven't been using your gene gun, huh? <laughs> uh, I think I'm operating at like 10% of maximal efficiency. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, so um, this group of scientists from the Weizmann Institute in Israel, led by Ehud Shapiro, are working on implementing an actual computational device using DNA and enzymes, the DNA being software and enzymes being hardware, hmm. and um, they can program certain algorithms, operations, in such a way that what comes out is another strand of DNA, 
and that, that'll be your answer. Oh, okay. So the enzyme and the DNA spits out another piece of DNA, right. which has some sequence on it. And right. And I guess what makes this discovery so um, so groundbreaking right now is that previous attempts to do that required ATP, ah. the, uh, the natural right, right. fuel source. I think we've talked about this before. But the way they want to do it is by using the actual DNA itself. The input would provide the fuel, uh-huh. and this way you wouldn't have to fuel your uh, computer oh, very much. Cool. So who knows? You, you know, one day you could have your own DNA computer, like a little DNA chip planted on your skin, and it could respond to all the uh, activities going on in your body. It could sense like what proteins or what antibodies or what antigens are in your system, so it could selectively respond in a way that that's helpful to you. Okay. But uh, if anyone wants to know more, they can go to our favorite journal. Oh no! The, the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. PNAS. Oh, I love I love PNAS. Reading it. Just reading it. Okay, and finally, do you like uh, diversity in your uh, animals? Diversity in my animals? You mean like pink zebras and three-headed turtles? Doesn't everybody like the three-headed turtle, you know? Yeah. I, I prefer the four-headed ones, but they're not as tasty. You mean both in the front, or I mean all four in the front, or two in the back, two in the front? <laughs> you know, with the four-headed turtle, you just have your choice, which yeah. is the brilliant part about it. <laughs> but uh, it turns out that a number of researchers have been looking at this issue of diversity uh, in the rainforests mm-hmm. under these logging conditions, because the assertion is that, you know, huge selective loggings are destroying the diversity of species. Right, it's killing uh, species which are very localized. Right, right. And uh, it's been known for a while, actually, that a number of uh, disturbances, natural disturbances, such as tree falls and these kinds of things, also help to maintain diversity in a population as well. Really? So it was a question, you know, if natural tree falls are actually maintaining diversity, but loggings appears to be reducing diversity, what's the, what's the happy medium between the two? So uh, a number of researchers actually studied this recently by looking at butterfly species in a uh, forest where either had been logged or was a naturally remaining forest. Mm-hmm. And they found that actually the diversity of species in the two were similar. So they had the same really same type of diversity, but the type of butterflies that they found were actually somewhat different. So particular groups of butterflies in the logged areas, ones which didn't really care much for canopies, mm-hmm. whereas in the underlogged areas, you found much more colorful arrays of butterflies. Huh. So it's, it's really interesting. So it doesn't seem as if diversity is actually affected, but in fact, the types of species that you get are somewhat affected. Could be some adaptive evolution going on. Huh? Right. Anyway, still an open question about what's going on here, but certainly, certainly interesting for enthusiasts. Excellent. So if anyone wants to know more, where should they go? Uh, well, they can check this out in the Journal of Applied Ecology, and that's volume 40, page 150. Cool. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, Professor Joseph Ledoux will join us to discuss his new book, Synaptic Self, How Our Brains Become Who We Are. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Broxel here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, what is it about the processes in our brain that give rise to our rich and complex behaviors? Can these operations be described by an understanding of the biology of our brains? Well, these are questions that science is just beginning to address, and part of the answer, it turns out, may lie in our synapses. Well, joining us today to discuss these issues on Berkeley Grocks is Professor Joseph Ledoux. Professor Ledoux is the Henry and Lucy Moses Professor of Science at New York University's Center for Neuroscience and is the author of The Emotional Brain, The Mysterious Underpinnings of Emotional Life. He has also written a wonderful book, Synaptic Self, How Our Brains Become Who We Are, and that is now available in paperback. Professor Ledoux, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, you've written a very fascinating book, The Synaptic Self, here. And I'm curious if uh, you could explain a little bit about some of the ideas uh, in it. First, I guess, what, what is a synapse, and uh, how do these synapses give rise to our complex behaviors? Well, the first part is easy. A synapse is a connection between two neurons, and it's also the means by which all neurons in the brain communicate with one another. So you can imagine a bunch of dots in a circle, and the circle would be the brain and the dots of the neurons. Without any connections between them, they can't do anything. But once you start drawing lines between the, the dots, each line that connects one dot with another is a place where two neurons can communicate. In fact, each neuron has connections with many, many others in the brain, so it's a means by which information traveling from one neuron to another can influence the next one and the next one and the next one and so forth. I see. So it's, it's sort of how the circuitry is wired together. That's it. In a nutshell, it's the wiring of the circuitry. I see. And these synapses then uh, you propose are sort of the, the fundamental unit then for all the processes in our brain that give rise to our, our behaviors. Right. So if, if you think back again, the circle with all the dots, no individual cell can do anything by itself. Only by many cells working together can anything as complicated as you know even a simple reflex uh, be executed by the brain. So in order for anything very complicated to go on, the neurons have to communicate with one another, both to produce the kind of activity that's necessary to control behavior, but also to generate our thoughts, our memories, and our feelings. Are these communications always uh, constant, or, or they can they fluctuate? Well, the brain is just a you know an electrochemical uh, you know madness. It's going on all the time. If you put an electrode in the brain, you'll find activity all over the place. Some areas are more active than others, but the ones that are inactive, the reason they're inactive is because there are inhibitory neurons in there that are very active that are inhibiting the excitatory ones. So the, the brain is in a constant state of activity, even when you sleep. In fact, during sleep, it's very active. So I guess the, the big question is then, how do we go from these local processes of, of the connections between neurons to uh, the complexity of our behavior then? Right. So much of what uh, neuroscientists do today is study how specific kinds of behaviors or mental processes work. So we can study how flash of light into the eye can go into the brain and be decoded as a visual stimulus. And if in that flash there was something meaningful, that meaningful stimulus then can generate a response of the arm or the legs or the whole body or the head or the eyes or whatever. And so that kind of stimulus response circuitry is relatively easy to work out and has been studied extensively within systems like the visual system, Turi system, the system involved in our body senses, touching and uh, warmth and temperature sensations and pain sensations and so forth, and also in the control of, of movement. So we know a lot about how movement systems work. And even beyond that, our ability to form memories. We now know that there are a variety of different systems in the brain that can form and store memories. 
But all of this work is focused on the individual system. Now, as a person, you aren't any one of those systems, but some thing that cuts across all of those systems. And so I think the challenge for neuroscience in the coming years is to continue to work on the individual systems, but also to start taking steps towards integration in the brain. How does information from one system affect information in another system? And that's really what Synaptic Self is about, trying to sort of a, it's sort of a call for action in studying these more complex um, interactions within the brain. But also it, it lists some possible ways, some things that we know about how integration might take place within the brain. Uh, I see. And so what, what are some of these ideas of how the different systems can interact mm-hmm. to give rise to our holistic well, behavior? One of the simplest is that if um, you've got system A and system B and they communicate with one another, and system A gets inputs from gets its own inputs and system B gets its own inputs even though they don't even though the the inputs are restricted to one system by way of communication within the brain uh the information that's in A can be shared with B and so so by way of synaptic connections between systems which is what we haven't studied that much information processing in one part of the brain can be communicated to the other part and be used by that other part. And that's, you know, that's a very trivial example. Another way that coordination could take place is, if, again, if you have system A and system B, we have all these systems, other systems in the brain called monoamine systems that produce chemicals like uh, serotonin and dopamine and uh, norepinephrine and acetylcholine, all these things that you know we, we hear about in terms of psychiatric disorders. And these systems are localized in small areas of the brainstem but their nerve fibers extend out throughout the brain. And so when those systems are active, say when serotonin is active, it squirts out its serotonin all over the brain. So if system A and system B receive that serotonin at the same time from some activity that activates the serotonin system, then the activities in A and B can be coordinated by the serotonin flood in those systems, even though the two systems, say, don't communicate with one another. So another way is if, you know, if system A and system B talk to system C, and then C can do the integration of A and B. I know this is kind of abstract. If we had pictures here, it would be easier to, to follow. But I think the basic idea that I'm trying to get across is that there are lots of ways, given what we already know about how the brain works, for information to be shared across systems. And what we just need to do is start studying in more detail how systems interact rather than just being satisfied to understand how interactions would take place within a system. We have to go between systems as well. So we need to study not only just vision, but how vision and memory and emotion interact and so forth. I I see, I see. And and to, I guess, what extent do these uh, separate systems act independently and uh, how much are they, I guess, are they coordinated by Mm -hmm. these very systems? Well, one, one good way to illustrate the independence is to think about different kinds of memory and and I think you know memory is really the essence of all this it's when I'm talking about interactions between systems I'm not really talking about the visual system and the auditory system so much I'm talking more about how different kinds of memories are formed because much of who we are is a memory it's either a memory of things we've experienced in our own lives or things that our ancestors experienced and that have been uh, encoded into the species genome and become part of the, the history of, of the species. So, you know, every species has its, its fears and, and so forth, and rats are really afraid of cats, not because of anything that particular rat has learned, but because of uh, the history of predation of rats by animals like cats. So there are 
genetic memories in our brain as well as individual memories. And the essence of, of who an individual is is encoded in those memories. Now, one of the best-known systems in terms of how synapses work is in terms of memory because what memory is at, at the level of biology is a change in synaptic transmission or what we call synaptic plasticity. Whenever we learn something, the synapses involved in the system that's doing the learning are modified so that the same stimulus can now produce a bigger effect after rather than what it did before the learning. So we need to understand in as much detail as possible how these learning and memory systems work, and that's really where a lot of my work is uh, focused today. So if we take two examples of memory systems, one is the uh, structure called the hippocampus, and that's involved in our conscious memories of, of experiences. So you remember what you did last night and what you did on your last birthday and what you did on your first, or not first, but maybe your fifth birthday uh, and so forth. And at the same time, we have other systems that store information implicitly or unconsciously. And one of those systems is the part of the brain that I work on a lot called the amygdala. And its job is to store information about harmful or dangerous experiences. So in a situation of danger, say you are walking down a path and you encounter a snake and you're about to step on it and you, you know the rattling perhaps makes you stop and just right before you step on it and perhaps maybe even you get a little nicked by the snake so the next time you're on a path like that you hear something, you're very jumpy and your muscles tense, you halt and your blood pressure is rising and all of that and those responses are controlled by this part of the brain called the amygdala. Independent of any conscious awareness you have, it works. It, it's activated unconsciously before you can actually be conscious of what's going on. At the same time, you'll be remembering through your hippocampus the activity that it stored, which had to do with you know where you were and who you were with and why you were on the path and that you encountered the snake. But these are conscious memories, and these two systems work quite independently. They can interact, but they form their memories separately. And we know this from studies of people who have damage to one part of the brain or the other. So people with damage to the hippocampus, if they're conditioned with a, a sound and a shock, when they hear the sound, their blood pressure goes up, but they don't remember having been conditioned. In contrast, people with amygdala damage, don't, their blood pressure doesn't go up when they hear the sound, but they remember the details of having been conditioned. So the amygdala is involved in this kind of implicit or unconscious learning about danger and the control of bodily responses uh, that are associated with danger, whereas the hippocampus is forming more of the cognitive, conscious representation of the experience. So these systems work independently, and there are chemicals floating around that can encourage both of them to learn at the same time. So by facilitating learning in those two systems simultaneously, you strengthen the kinds of memories that are being formed about that experience. Oh, that's quite fascinating. So is it, is it possible then to, I guess, unlearn uh, behavior consciously but still have sort of the emotional response to it then? Absolutely. So we can forget experiences that we've had and yet at the same time have very profound emotional reactions to that. So uh, we can turn that example up around a bit and see exactly how I think what you're getting at might work. We know that the release of certain hormones uh, called stress hormones like cortisol into the bloodstream will go to the conscious memory system, the hippocampus, and impair its function. So in a, in a, a very traumatic situation, say someone is raped or, or badly beaten or something, the hippocampus could form a very weak memory of that experience, but the amygdala could form a very profound and strong unconscious memory. All right. Well, uh, it looks like we're running a little bit out of time. I just want to thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox and a very fascinating discussion. Well, thank you. 
You were just listening to Professor Joseph Ledoux discuss issues in his book, Synaptic Self, Our Brains Become Who We Are. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, you can find out just exactly how is soap made. So stay tuned. Back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Will ever get that not-so-clean feeling and wonder how soap is made? Well, you can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. A little bit of soap will wash away. Ever wonder how soap is made? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. Let's begin today's show by coming clean about how those highfalutin, perfumey bars of bath soap actually start out as big blobs of animal fat or vegetable oil. To make dainty soap out of this stuff, we need to add water and a caustic alkali, like sodium hydroxide, which is a base that will dissolve in water. And here in this soap factory, the fats, alkali, and water are all combined in a huge vat and then boiled. Let's dive in. Look there. As the fat heats up and breaks apart in the presence of the strong alkali, it turns into fatty acids and a product called glycerol, which will give the soap its creamy texture. Fatty acids are soluble in both oil and water, and together they form a semi-solid substance that is the beginning of soap. This entire chemical process is called saponification. What's that? They've just added salt to the mix. And suddenly, whoa, we're right back up on the surface. Adding salt makes the semi-solid soap float to the top, where it's drawn off and dumped into another vat to repeat the process until all the fat is saponified and the soap is pure. At that point, our soft, warm soap is ready to be churned. And hold your nose, because here comes the perfume. Then they mill the soap between rollers to produce the proper grade of fineness and press it into shape. You could almost call it a soap opera. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, making science make sense. Oh, Everyday Science Lady. If only I could be in a soap opera with you. Please. Well, coming up next is the Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. Ah, uh, thank you very much, Charles. Yes, this is uh, the Tokyo Kid from uh, Tokyo, and 
Here is the answer to last week's question of the week. What are buckyballs? Well, buckyballs are a form of carbon, an animal of carbon, C60s and C70s, and they form round structures, round structures which resemble the geodesic domes that Buckmin Safirin built many, many years ago, and that is why they are called buckyballs. Well, that's really crazy and great list there, Tokyo Kid. But it's the craziest Scotsman with this week's question of the week. Hey, so sure the buckyballs are really cool and like, but we've never learned something about the glass. You know, glass, the thing that you look through, the thing you drink out of, it's really not great. But, you know, it's kind of a question, is it a liquid? I mean, it looks solid, but is it a liquid? I don't really know. But if you think you know the answer, or just think you know the answer, email us here at groks at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but hey, you just might sip something a little more fluid. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Z. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel.